You guys can have a seat, and as you do, we're going to get right to it. So if you've got a Bible, open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, I'll give you a couple seconds to get there. We doing okay this morning? John 1. John 1, if you, if you don't have a Bible or can't get there quick enough, it'll be on the screen. So John chapter 1, I see some pages flipping, I love it. We're going to be, we're going to look at verse 14. John 1, 14, if you got it, let me hear you say, I got it. If you don't got it, look up at the screens. Now let me ask you, if you got it, let me hear you say, I got it. All right, y'all got it. Here we go. John 1, 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So two quick truths I want to point out to you about God before we go anywhere else. Number one is it says, God became flesh. And he dwelt among us. In other words, God is not a distant and disconnected God. Uh, God, he steps right into our world. He steps right into our context. He steps right into our pain, our struggle, our confusion, even our joy and our celebration. Uh, He hasn't left us to figure things out on our own. He's not indifferent to our circumstances and the things that we're walking through right now. He is an up close and he's a personal God. But it also says that uh, he came full of grace and truth. Not one more than the other. Uh, Not a little bit of both, or, you know, a little bit of each, but he was full of both, which means, and he is more compassionate, he is more understanding, he's more forgiving towards our shortfalls and our sins than you and I could ever imagine, and yet he never compromises the truth. Jesus, it's interesting, he was against many things, yet he had a reputation for being for people. Like Jesus had this ability to speak out clearly against sin and yet to still draw to himself the very people who were found guilty by his words, which tells us something really important. Convictions and compassion, they're not at odds with each other. In fact, a central task of genuine compassion is telling the truth. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because this morning, uh, the title of my sermon is called Jesus and Gender. And, uh, and next week, the title of the sermon is going to be Jesus and, and Porn. And I, I, I kind of want to start here and say, this is a unique Sunday in the life of our church. If you're new to the commons, this is your first Sunday, uh, welcome. Uh, if, uh, if this is the week that you decided to invite your neighbor or your coworker for the first time, uh, you know, sorry you didn't get the email that said we're going to be talking about this. You know, part of me wants to be like, ah, oh, dude, I'm so, I'm so bummed this is like your first Sunday. But another part of me, honestly is really excited this is your first Sunday because I think that your affections are going to be stirred for Jesus today in a way that you wouldn't expect. Uh, This message that I'm teaching today has been stirring in my heart for almost a year now. Uh, I went to our elder team last December and 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 I said, I think we need to talk about gender dysphoria and the transgender movement because I think there's a lot of people in our church who really want to understand what's going on and how to navigate through it. And I also think there's a lot of people in our church who who are... Uh, experiencing a lot of pain as they personally struggle with gender dysphoria or know someone who is. And so uh, our normal cadence is to take a book of the Bible like we're doing right now with Romans and just work through it verse by verse. But every once in a while, we will step out of that cadence and, uh, and we'll step into a, a specific topic that we think there's like opportunity and, and need for addressing. And I, and I want to tell you, Whichever way we're doing it, whether we're going through the word verse by verse in a series or doing a, a topic study like this, the, the hope and the aim is the same every time. Our, our hope is twofold. One, uh, we want to build up our church towards maturity. Like we want to help you grow in your faith and understanding as you follow Jesus, but we also, man, we want to give people hope. 
We want to give people hope in Christ. We want to give you hope uh, for what he can do for you. We want to give you hope in the midst of the pain or the struggle or the challenge uh, that you're walking through. And so that's the heart uh, behind this week and next week. So this week, the sermon, Jesus and gender. Why are we preaching a sermon called Jesus and gender? Well, even though only about 1% of the population would identify as transgender, 100% of us are being faced with this ideology and uh, even my five-year-old son, my five-year-old son and I, we were on a walk not too long ago and we're walking past one of my neighbor's homes and, and they have a pride flag hanging out front and, and he stops and he goes, dad, look, a rainbow flag. And I said, I said, yeah, dude, do you know what that means? And he says, yeah, God promised to never flood the earth again. And uh, I was like, yeah, 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 that's what it means. Um, but I want to show you this scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to what this says. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Listen to me. Where the world is being loud about something, the church has to engage. And here's why, because we're all being discipled by somebody. You're either being discipled by the, the, the word or you're being discipled by the world. And you need to know these two are in constant conflict with each other. And there's no way that the next generation, I mean, really, there's no way that, that our generation is going to be raised up to know the word and to honor Christ as Lord in our hearts unless we're willing to enter into these controversial conversations and explain what God's word says about it. And so again, go back to 1 Peter 3. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with what? Do it with gentleness and respect. Now, here's kind of the observation. Uh, people either choose not to talk about uh, issues like this and other controversial issues, which, by the way, can I just give a defense for pastors who choose not to enter into this? I understand. I mean, it is like I'm, I'm consciously choosing to run through a minefield. And by the way, I'm taking you all with me today, okay? Uh, I am constantly, I'm, I'm consciously choosing that, right? I understand not talking about it, but people either don't talk about it or here's what happens. They do talk about it, but they don't talk about it with gentleness and respect. And, and I want to tell you my hope for this morning is my hope is to, to, to jump into this conversation, but to do so with gentleness and respect. And so to that end, here's what I want to ask. It's a, it's a request I'm telling you I'll probably never, ever make again, but here's what I want to ask. So when I teach, one of my favorite things is that you all are learning to do this more. Like when I teach and you agree with something, like oftentimes I hear somebody say, mm, or amen, or, uh, or sometimes, you know, there's like a clap. There needs to be more of that, you know, because God's word is good, and I'm telling you, every week you're getting good stuff. But, uh, and, and, and actually, life hack here, uh, especially for the 11 o'clock service people, man, if you're sitting in a sermon and you're like getting really hungry and like, dude, I wish this fool would hurry up, okay, I'm telling you, the more amens I get, the more claps I get, the more affirmation I get, I preach better and I preach shorter sermons. You will get to lunch, lunch quicker, okay? Um, there you go. Okay, don't start clapping yet. Don't start clapping yet. But here's my ask, okay? Here's my ask. I love that you guys do that. Um, but today, I want to ask that you don't do it until I give you permission to at the end. Okay, I, I, I want to ask that you don't give me any, you know, agreeable amens or clapping until I'm going to give you a point at the end where I'll say, okay, now you can do that. And I hope you do at that point because it's a point you should. Um, but here's why. Uh, what I don't 
want to happen is this. We're, we're talking about a subject today that I think is going to tap into some very painful parts of people's lives. And what I don't want is your verbal affirmation or your clapping, uh, your excitement over what is being said to be misinterpreted as you being against those people. Okay? So, are we in agreement? No, no amens, no clapping until I tell you you can at the end, and when I tell you to at the end, you should. Okay, we in agreement? Okay, now, what did I just say? I said, don't give me, don't give me any verbal feedback. You failed already. All right, here's a trick. Okay, so some of you might be thinking, some of you might be thinking, what does he mean by painful experiences? What does he mean? Well, imagine being a teenager. Uh, imagine being a teenager who doesn't feel at home in their body. Like, imagine being a teenager that you've never felt like you kind of align with the typical, like, gender stereotypes for a guy, you know, liking big trucks and rough sports and, or, or for a girl, you know, like, you've, you've never felt like you've uh, aligned with the gender stereotypes for a girl of, like, you know, dressing up or playing with dolls or, and, and, and you've, you've, you've wished that this would change over time, but it hasn't changed for you. And you're not happy. And imagine this, you're not happy, but you want to be happy, like we all do. You want to be happy. And, and so you've always kind of felt like this outcast. And imagine that one day you're, you're on social media, you're on TikTok, and, and you see one of your friends or one of your peers comes out on TikTok and says that they are becoming transgender, that they're changing their name, they're changing their pronouns. And, and you watch, as this happens, you watch other people come around that person and celebrate it and affirm them. And then you see this person, like as they continue from there, you see them, they, they appear to be so happy as they've come out. And this gets you to start to wonder, man, maybe that's what I should do. Like, I want to be happy. Maybe this is what will make me happy. Or imagine being the parent of a teenager. And imagine that one day your teenager comes home and says to you, I don't feel at home in my body. I never have. And so I want to change my name and I want to change my pronouns. I mean, think about this. This is your child who you remember being in the delivery room and you, you know, y'all didn't find out ahead of time and, and, the, and the baby's born and you're like, oh, it's a girl or oh, it's a boy. And you so very carefully picked out that name. And they come to you and, 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 and you hear this and you're, you're shocked, you're confused. Um, and, and you kind of hope that it's just like a phase, you know, and that over time it'll change, but over time it doesn't change. In fact, the conviction in your child grows stronger and stronger. And so you begin to, you begin to look for help. You begin to kind of seek help. You're, you're reading stuff that you can find. You're meeting with maybe a counselor. And as you read online, what you read is children and teenagers who, uh, who experience gender dysphoria are more likely to have suicidal thoughts. And this just like breaks your heart. This is my child. And so you begin to meet with a counselor, and the counselor actually says, hey, the, the, the only option you have, really, for your child is to affirm them in the transition they want to make, because there's two options on the table, transition or suicide. They say something to you like, hey, look, you can either have a dead son or a living daughter. Which do you want? Imagine being a, a grandparent, and you go and you pick up your, your grandchild. It's your, it's, your, it's your day to pick up your grandchild from from elementary school. You're excited. You're going to take them to get ice cream afterwards. And they get in the car and, and you're asking them about their day and they're telling you everything. And they start to tell you about this homework assignment that they're excited to do when they get home. They were given a gender wheel. And their assignment is to use this gender wheel to help them determine what gender they are. And as a grandparent, you're sitting there thinking, what do I even, what, what is he talking about? And what do I even say to this? 
Well, listen, none of these are hypothetical. As I've been studying for this, as I've been talking to other people about this message, these are real stories that have come up. And so this morning, my hope is to enter into this conversation with gentleness and respect. And, and so the place to start, I think, is we need to start with some definitions. And actually, before we start with definitions, I just want to be real with you. I've had a lot of help with this sermon. Um, so if, if the sermon ends up being really bad, blame me. But if it ends up being really good and helpful and stirs your affections for Jesus, I want to give credit where credit is due. So one, there's some books that have been really helpful to me in this. One is a book by Preston Sprinkle called Embodied. Uh, There's a guy named Mark Yarhouse who's written multiple books that's been very helpful. There's a woman, Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote a book called Secular Creed that's been helpful. You hear me quote a couple others. But there's specifically two pastors that have been really helpful to me, uh, Josh Howerton and Eric Geiger. They've helped me take like all of this content, condense it down to a clear, hopefully, uh, way and and help me outline this sermon, okay? So I'm saying that to say this. In a lot of ways, I don't feel like I'm preaching my own sermon, uh, but I want to be helpful more than original here, okay? So... Starting with some definitions. Let's start with definitions. First definition I want to throw at you is the definition for sex. Sex is defined as male or female, typically with reference to chromosomes, internal reproductive anatomy, and external genitals. So when someone is born, their sex is, is identified based on anatomy. It's not assigned. And, and actually, in the past, sex and, and gender identity have always been viewed as one and the same. It's not been until the past 10 to 15 years that there's been a push to actually separate the two from each, from each other. And so that leads to the second definition. The second definition is gender identity. So gender identity is defined as a person's self-perception of whether they are male or female, masculine or feminine. So here's the idea. The idea is whereas sex is assigned at birth by like a doctor, gender identity is determined later in that person's life based on what they feel, or based on who they perceive themselves to be. Now, here's what I want you to see. The idea that gender identity is separate from sex is the foundation of the transgender movement. In fact, some advocates of the transgender movement are are pushing for a genderless society where instead of gender being viewed as like this binary, only two options, male or female, they'd say it's more so like a spectrum. And so depending on a person's stage of life or where they're at, they they can move along that spectrum. They're non-binary. This is called gender fluidity. Now, here's the irony in all of this. The irony is that the transgender movement's separation of gender identity from sex actually depends on stereotypes, which makes us have to ask this question, what is a male? What is a female? What is a man? What is a woman? And, And here's the reality. Gender is biologically... Like, uh, it's, it's, it's biologically defined. You either have XY or XX chromosomes. Gender stereotypes, they are culturally constructed and can change depending on when and where you live. I'll give you a perfect example. This is, uh, this is a, a quote from an article in the Ladies' Home Journal, a magazine I know you've all vigorously read throughout your life. Uh, the Ladies' Home Journal, uh, it, it was uh, one of the leading women's magazines uh, in the 20th century, Okay. This article was written in 1918. So I think that's 105 years ago-ish. So 105 years ago, this article was written. And in the article, it said this. Pink, being a more decided and strong color, is more suitable for boys. While blue, which is more delicate and dinky, is prettier for a girl. So, okay, this is what this is saying. 
a hundred years ago, when people would do their gender reveal on social media, uh, <clears throat> pink was for boy and blue was for girl. Now, obviously that stereotype has changed with time. Take this a little further. So a few years ago, um, Olympian uh, Bruce Jenner came out as transgender. And this was a huge deal. I mean, if you remember this happening, it was a huge deal. So much written about it, so much uh, you know, news and stuff. And I actually want to show you this picture. This is, uh, this is the cover of Vanity Fair in 2015. This isn't going to be up here for long. This is uh, uh, from Vanity Fair 2015, okay? Now, here's what's crazy about this. When, when Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, uh, and then this, this uh, magazine was published, here's what's crazy. The people who were the most upset about it were actually women's rights activists. And they were upset because they were saying for years, they, they were, it was the women's rights activists who were upset because for years they'd been fighting to be seen for more than just having long hair, makeup, and cleavage. Uh, Kara Dansky, she is a self-proclaimed radical progressive feminist. She wrote this book called The Abolition of Sex, How the Transgender Movement Harms Women and Girls. She said this, she said, Caitlyn Jenner undid in one magazine cover what feminists had been pushing to do for the past 150 years. Now think about this, okay? That, that, that picture, there was nothing about Caitlyn Jenner's biography or uh, biology that said she was female. So what the magazine cover does, as Kara Dansky goes on to say, is it communicates that girls are people who like long hair, lipstick, eyelashes, and pretty dresses. She goes, she goes on to point out that both transgender activists and male chauvinists of the 1950s were saying the same thing, but just from different sides. So transgender activists were saying, hey, if you like these certain things, then that means you're a girl. The male chauvinists of the 1950s were saying, hey, if you're a girl, you should like these certain things. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, The Secular Creed, uh, she says, if you separate gender from sex, all you are left with is stereotypes. Which leads me to say this, we've, we've got to have broader definitions for male and female because we have some men who don't like big trucks, hunting, and power tools. By the way, I'm one of them. I'm 0 for 3. Uh, just ask Noel Brown. Like, I, I, don't have, I don't own any power tools. I mean, except for these two right here. I don't own any power tools. Um, and I don't know anything about them. Dad joke. Uh, you know, there's women who don't like the things that, you know, maybe are stereotypically liked by girls. That was my wife growing up, by the way. She grew up on a ranch. She loved playing in the dirt. Uh, she loved playing sports. She owned goats, people. My wife owned goats. Uh, we used to call that being a tomboy. Like, it was an endearing term. And, and I bet there's women in here who, at some point in your life, you were called a tomboy. My, my point is, we need broader definitions for male and female. So all of this leads to my next definition, which is the definition for gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria. This is the sense of mismatch between physical sex, or your body, and psychological gender identity, or your mind. Okay, now this is where I need you to start leaning in if you're not already, because this blew my mind as I was studying for this. Those wrestling with gender dysphoria feel like there is a war raging inside of them between their mind and their body. Uh, BBC put out a documentary called Transgender Kids, and listen to what they said. They said, at the heart of the debate about transgender children is the idea that your brain can be at war with your body. Now, you got to see this. Who else says there is a war going on inside of them? 
If you go to Romans 7, look at this. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, or I see in my body, another law, waging war against my mind. Now this is huge. Like, do you realize that it's not just transgender activists that say there's a war going on between my mind and my body? It's Christians who say this too. I mean, to put it bluntly, the whole Christian life is a war between the mind and the body. The whole Christian life is a war between my identity, who God declares me to be, and my activity, what I actually do. I mean, the whole reason that we that we become a Christian is because we know there's something that's not right within us and we need Jesus to help us. Like we need him to free us. We need him to make us whole. And here's what's so beautiful about this. As Christians, man, we should be so full of compassion for the person who says, man, I feel like there's this war going on inside of me between my mind and my body. Like we should have so much compassion for the person who's experiencing gender dysphoria because even though we might come to different conclusions and, and offer different solutions, we can at least understand what it feels like to have a war going on inside of us. Okay, so this leads to our fourth definition, which is the definition for transgender. Transgender is defined as an umbrella term for many experiences of gender identity that do not align normatively with a person's biological sex. So here's, here's what I need to say. This has really, truly become a movement. And I'll show you. So almost 20% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ+. Almost 20%. That's one in five people from Gen Z identify as LGBTQ+. Now, you look at previous generations. My generation, I hate to tell you, I'm, I'm a millennial. Um, but 11.2% of my generation identifies as LGBTQ+. 3.3% of Gen X uh, identifies as LGBTQ+, 2.7% of baby boomers, and 1.7% of people born before 1946. So here's what I want you to see in that. The number of people identifying as LGBTQ+, is increasing significantly. But here's what's interesting about this. The statistics on those with same-sex attraction, so the, the, the L and the G, those are basically staying the same throughout history, throughout the past years, generations. It's what's increasing dramatically is those who are identifying as transgender and all of the other letters past that. You remember not long ago, it used to just be LGBT and then it was LGBTQ and then it was LGBTQ plus and then LGBTQ IA plus LGBTQ IA 2S plus. It used to just be a rainbow flag, but now there's more colors, more stripes that have been added. Abigail Schreier, um, she's an Ivy League educated sociologist, journalist, and researcher, and here's, here's what you need to hear about her. She's not a Christian, okay? She wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, and listen to what she says. She says that transgenderism among adolescents right now is contagious. It's an epidemic spread primarily by two means, she says. Number one, immense social media immersion, primarily TikTok. And number two, through relationships. And she, in her book, she goes on to kind of paint this picture of, okay, so you've got these young teenage girls who want a sense of identity. They want a sense of belonging. They want, they want an affirmation. And they're finding it through this movement. Now, I said this earlier. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it again. We're all being discipled by someone. 
We're either being discipled by the word or we're being discipled by the world. And these two are in constant conflict with each other. And we all have to decide which one is going to rule my life. Like which one is going to have the authority in my life, the final word in my life. Which one is going to lead and direct my life. I love how Josh Howerton puts it. He says, all of us have to make a decision at some point. In my life, is the world going to override the word or is the word going to override the world? And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to answer three questions. The first question is, what does God say about my body? The second question is, how do we find happiness when there's a war raging inside of us between our mind and our body? And then the third question, uh, there's a third question I want to answer at the end. So first question, first question is, what does God say about my body? So Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27 says, so God created, which if you've got a pen out, I see lots of pens and notes. I would encourage you underline those three words. So God created. Those three words in verse 27, they are jam-packed with theological truth. Like these totally shape our view of God, but they don't only shape, they don't only shape our view of God, they shape our, our view of the whole world. And really, they, they form the foundational starting place for us in understanding gender dysphoria and the transgender movement. Now, I want to give you two quick truths from these three words. Uh, first is, God created, meaning anything he created is lesser than him and subject to him. Like creation is never, is never greater than its creator. The creator has authority over all that he created. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. God created meaning that like any creator and creation, he designed things to be a certain way for a certain purpose. Okay, so it says, verse 27, so God, and you, you, it says, so God created, you go on, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, the implications of this are huge. Starting with, God created us. He created us. We didn't just randomly appear or come to be by chance. We were created. And not only that, we stand out among all of his creation because of all that he created, he chose to put his image on us. That's crazy. And remember what we just said, creation, it's never greater than its creator. We are subject to him. He has authority over us. And as as is true in any creation, we must have been created or designed in a very intentional way for a very intentional purpose. And here in verse 27, we already begin to see what that purpose is. We were created in his image. We were created for the purpose of reflecting his glory, of imaging his glory. But going further, we see more about our purpose. Verse 28, it says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So from the outset, God stated clearly what he's called us to, which is bring him glory by stewarding creation and multiplying, which means this, our bodies have a God-given function and purpose. Our, our bodies, they're not random. They didn't come to be by chance. The, the way we are matters. And then that takes us back to verse 27. Verse 20 says, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Listen, we were created as male and female, or male or female. These are not social constructs, but intentional design features from God so that we could carry out our God-given purpose. 
I, I love how Aaron Brockett says it. He's a pastor in Indiana. And he says, men and women are the created and intentional design beings that hold together and support God's temple of humanity. And he points out the fact that scripture says that our bodies are the temple of God. And together we radiate the glory of God's image to the, to the world. A man and a woman are both, are both pieces of God's sacred structure of creation. He knows what he's doing. And he goes on to say, which is why throughout history, the union of a man and a woman in marriage has served to be the beam upon which society rests. It's also why when broken homes occur, broken societies are soon to follow. And if you keep reading in Genesis 1.31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. This is what the word says is true and good. This is what God says about our bodies. Now, all of this leads us to ask a really important question, and it's this. What is the fundamental meaning of personhood? What is the fundamental meaning of personhood? And, and, and how we answer this question is critical, and I'll just tell you up front, the way the world answers that question and the way the word answers that question is very different. So let me show you a picture. This is a picture of how the world views personhood. The world views personhood as like you are made up of two separate parts, your person, which is your mind, and your body. And, and what the world says about personhood is your, your mind, that's the part of you that really matters. Like that's who you really are. That's the part of you that has legal and moral standing. And then you have your body and that part of you doesn't really matter. It's meaningless. It's just an expendable biological organism who, who you really are, they would say, is trapped inside of this body that is random and is often a hindrance to you being who you really are. That's the world's view of personhood. And by the way, this view of personhood is what the transgender movement is built upon. And also, by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. Like You go back and read about ancient Gnosticism, that's what this is. So whereas the world's view of personhood is that the mind and the body are separate, one's meaningless, the other's not, the word's view of personhood looks like this. Here's a picture of the word's view. So the word's view of personhood is that our body and our mind are one and they both really matter. Like our bodies aren't random. Our bodies aren't indifferent. They're critical to who we are. Christians have a really high view of the body. I mean, just think about what scripture says in other places. Psalm 139 says that we were born in a body that was fearfully and wonderfully made. Romans 8 says that Jesus right now is standing at the right hand of God, interceding on yours and my behalf in his resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 6 says that as Christians, our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 says that one day we will have a resurrection body or we'll be resurrected in a body. This is what God says about our body. Now, I want to pause for a second. I want to say this. As we're talking about Jesus and gender, we're not just talking about an issue. We're talking about people. And, and I can't help but think about like when Jesus pulls up on the shore. Do you remember this? And he sees the crowd and it says he was filled or bursting with compassion as he looked at the crowd because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember that? And as I'm like studying this <laughs> this week, I just, I'm like, oh, Jesus, I wish that we could see you walk into this room right now because I, I know you would step into this room. 
And similarly, you would look at the people in this room and see people like you, you, you'd look on this room with compassion, filled with compassion, seeing a room full of people like sincerely wanting to learn. How do I live as a light in this dark world when there's all this com- confusion, like lack of understanding about how to navigate? Like I want to see Jesus step into this room and as he looks across the room, I know he'd be filled with compassion as he sees you, as you are experiencing this gender dysphoria. Like I know he would look out on our campus, he would look out on our community, see people like experiencing gender dysphoria, see people who have already gone down this path. Like he'd see the people who have already transitioned or are beginning to transition and he would be so full of compassion. Be so full of compassion. He sees these people who are hurting, people who are searching for happiness, people who are searching for joy and fulfillment, searching for freedom. People searching for freedom from the war inside. And church, I just want to say this, like whether we're talking about Jesus and gender or we're talking about Jesus and porn, next week we're talking about Jesus and, you know, name the issue. We can't lose sight of the fact that we're not just talking about issues, we're talking about people, real people, people who've been made in the image of God, people whom God loves greatly, people who are like really hurting, people who simply want to know, how do I resolve this war going on inside of me between my mind and my body? And by the way, this goes back to something that I said, I think it was last week. Man, we all have this inner longing in us for fulfillment and joy. Like all of us, we're born with this inner longing uh, to, 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 to be made whole. You know, to experience freedom. At the root of the transgender movement is people who simply want to know the answer to this question. How can I be happy? That's at the root of it. How can I be happy? How can I be happy when there's this, like, this war raging inside of me between my mind in my body. And this leads to the second question that I want to answer. Question number two is, how do we find happiness when there's a war raging inside of us between our mind and our body? Let me tell you how the world says we solve this problem. So the world says we solve this problem uh, the, way, the way that we, uh, the, the world says if you want to be happy, listen to your mind, change your body. The world says if you want to be happy, listen to your mind, change your body. Now, before I tell you what the word says, let me tell you what's concerning about this, specifically in regard to the transgender movement. Statistics tell us that 70% of adults, or excuse me, 70% of adolescents who are not encouraged to change their gender eventually phase out of their gender dysphoria. So here's what that means. For all of these body and life-altering procedures that are being done at such early ages, For 70% of those people, if they had just been left alone, they would have eventually phased out of their gender dysphoria. Now, in in, in places around the world where they're like ahead of us in this conversation and ahead of us being like, ahead of the U.S. in this conversation, in places around the world where they're ahead of us in this conversation, they're they're actually shutting down their gender transition clinics because what they're realizing is These people, they're counseling at such early ages to change their bodies, to match their feelings. It's not solving their pursuit of happiness. It's not resolving this war that exists in their their life between their mind and their body, but it is causing irreversible damage to be done to their bodies. Preston Sprinkle in his book Embodied, he talks about how counselors are, are counseling children or adolescents wrestling with gender dysphoria, and they're, they're counseling parents who have children wrestling with this, and they're saying, you have two options. It's transition or suicide. 
Like parents are being told by counselors, look, you can either have a dead son or a living daughter. You can either have a dead daughter or a living son. Which do you want? Man, I just want to tell you that's a false dichotomy. <laughs> like those aren't the only two options. And to be quite frank, the statistics don't back it up. Some studies are showing that suicide rates are higher after a person gets gender-affirming care. In fact, uh, the Tavistock Clinic in the UK, which was the world's largest pediatric gender care clinic, it shut down because an independent national review found, and I quote, the current model of care was leaving young people at considerable risk of poor mental health and distress. So the world says, if you want to be happy, listen to your mind, change your body. But what does the word say? What does the word say? Well, if you look at Romans 12.1, look at what Romans 12.1 says. I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I, I, it's worth pointing this out here. It says, like, give your bodies, offer your bodies to God. Like, a lot of times we're told, man, give your heart to God, right? Give your life to God. No, here it says, give your bodies to God. And it goes on to say, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we find happiness when there's this war raging inside of us between our mind, between our body? Well, the world says, listen to your mind, change your body. But the word says, embrace your body, let God renew your mind. In fact, if you go back to Romans 12.1, Romans 12.1 says, by the mercies of God. Or he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Like when we think about God's mercy, the mercies of God or God's grace, we typically only think of half of it, which is the forgiveness of sins, you know, salvation. But really in Christ, we don't just get the forgiveness of sins. Man, we get the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed. Like this is the story of every believer in this room. We come to Christ because of the war going on between our mind and our body, our, our, our flesh and our spirit. And in Christ, we not only find salvation, but we find power to be transformed so that we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And, and I want to point this out. Even if you don't believe in the power of Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, like this idea, embrace your body, renew your mind, and that's not new. I mean, think about it. Like, isn't that the way that we treat most other medical issues? Like, think about the 100-pound the, the teenager that comes into a doctor's office and says, doctor, I feel overweight. I feel fat. Like, no loving doctor is going to go to that teenager and say, okay, let's get you on a diet, and, and let's get you liposuction, and let's do some stomach-binding procedure. No. No loving doctor is going to do that. A loving doctor is going to say, hey, let's, let's fix the way you're thinking about this. Like, let's not change your body to match your mind. Let's change your mind to match your body. So how do we find happiness when there's a war raging inside of us between our mind and our body? The word says, embrace your body. Let God renew your mind. Okay, so I said that there's a third question that I want to answer, and, and this is the third question. If you're a person who's already gone down this road, If you're a person who you have wrestled with your gender identity, maybe you've already transitioned. 
Maybe you're beginning the process of transitioning your gender. The question I want to answer for you is this. Man, like if I've already gone down this road, can, I, can, I, can God still redeem me? Like, can, can God still use me? And so what I want to show you or tell you is about what happens in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, it's really incredible. God, he comes to one of his apostles named Philip. Philip was in Jerusalem at the time, and he says, Philip, he says, I want you to go to the desert. God sends an angel, okay? Like, this is a big deal. He's sending an angel. How many of y'all had an angel sent to you before? Not me. So he sends an angel to tell Philip, go to the desert. That's all he tells him. He doesn't tell him why, doesn't tell him what. Just says, go to the desert. Philip, he goes. So Philip goes, and it says, while he was on his way to the desert, he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch who had gone to Jerusalem to worship God and was now on his way back home. So right away, we learn three things are going on here. One, we, we learned that this guy Philip ran into is a eunuch, which in their culture, here's what that meant. That was a man whose genitals had been cut, crushed, or pierced to sterilize him or feminize him, basically to remove his masculinity. Second thing we learn is that we're told that this guy was from Ethiopia and had traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And then the third thing we learn is we're told that he was on his way back home. So he's going back home to Ethiopia now. So here's, here's what this means. It means this eunuch had traveled over a thousand miles to Jerusalem, to where the temple of God was, hoping to worship in the presence of God. Like hoping to encounter, have an encounter with the living God. But here's what historians tell us happened. They tell us that when he arrived at the temple, he would have seen a sign at the entrance that had been hung there by the religious leaders that said this, no lame, no blind, no diseased, and no eunuchs may enter. So after traveling over a thousand miles, Hoping to encounter God, he's turned away. And when Philip runs into him here in Acts 8, he's on his way home. Now, just stop for a second and think about what had to have been going through this eunuch's mind. I mean, he had been thinking, oh my gosh, like, does God really love me? Like, does, does God want anything to do with me? And I just want to stop here and say, for those of you who've already gone down this road, Man, I would imagine that you might be asking the same question that this guy was asking. Man, does God still love me? Does God want anything to do with me? Let's just have an honest moment here. Like it's possible that some of the very people who were supposed to represent God to you are the ones who've pushed you away, are the ones who've maybe kept you from entering a place like this. And if that's you, oh, I want you to see what happens in Acts 8. Acts 8 tells us, so when Philip comes upon him, the eunuch, he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, he said he was reading Isaiah 53, which here's what that means. He's not got this little Bible like this. He's got a scroll. And so he would have, in that same section, come across what Isaiah 56 says. Look at this. It says, let not the eunuch say, which first of all, oh my goodness, the eunuch realizing God's speaking to him, going out of his way to speak to him, says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, God's word speaking to this eunuch saying, don't say your life is meaningless. Don't say your life is ruined. It says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house. 
and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons. A monument and a name better than daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now think about this guy. Like he's been all the way to Jerusalem, hoping to encounter God, hoping to meet with God. Then these religious people turn him away. Why? Why'd they turn him away? Because of his scars? Because of his scars? So now he heads home dejected, thinking about his scars from his cut, pierced, and crushed self. And he's thinking, because of my scars, I couldn't enter the temple. But here he is on his way home, and he's reading Isaiah 53. And listen to what Isaiah 53 tells us about Jesus. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So here's what happens. This eunuch travels a thousand miles to Jerusalem to worship God. He gets there and he's rejected. So he leaves. And as he's leaving, God, because of his love for this eunuch, did you realize that? Because of his love for his eunuch, he doesn't go to random Joe. He goes to Apostle Philip and he says, you gotta go get this guy. Sends him 60 miles out into the desert from Jerusalem. Doesn't tell him why, just go get him. And when Philip gets there, he finds him reading Isaiah 53, which is telling him about Jesus being cut, pierced, and crushed. Like God sent Philip to tell this man, your scars don't define you. His do. His do. And that's the point where you can clap because we should clap for that because that is absolutely amazing news. Listen to me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of scars you have. If you're in Christ, your scars don't define you. His do. And to those who will come to Christ, you've got to hear this. God promises to give you a name better than sons and daughters. God promises to give you an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you. And you need to know this. You need to know this. If you identify as transgender, if you're wrestling with your gender identity, if you feel like there's a war raging inside of you between your mind and your body, you have walked into a church where you will never see a sign hanging out front that says you are not welcome here. We will not mock you. We will not shame you. We will not bar you from this place. We will love you. But we will also speak the truth with gentleness and respect. And we will invite you into the journey that that the rest of us are already on to be transformed by his grace and have our minds be brought into alignment with who God has declared us to be. Because listen to me, you are not who you say you are. You are not who you say you are. You are not who I say you are. You are not who... What anybody else says you are, you are who God says you are. You are who God says you are. Father, I pray that you would help that truth sink into our hearts, that you have declared declared us to be through Christ sons and daughters with a name that will never be removed. You have given us a place within your house, a place within your walls through Christ. Thank you that through Jesus, no matter what I've done, no matter what scars I have, because you sent Jesus to be pierced for my transgressions, crushed for my iniquities by his wounds, I could be healed and forever called a child of God. Lord, help us to live as lights in the darkness. Teach us to have strong convictions matched with strong compassion. Teach us to speak the truth with gentleness and respect. I pray that we would be so winsome, so winsome. 
And Lord, I pray for the ones experiencing gender dysphoria, the ones who've already gone down the path. Lord, help them see what you have for them and who you declare them to be. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.